It might be terrible. Lord willing, it won't be. At least my prayers are answered. We're going to look this morning at what has become one of my favorite passages. Um, I think you'll understand why when we, when we get there. Um, but uh, we're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, and verses 21 uh, through 4, 5. So 1 Corinthians 3, 21, verses, and down to 4, 5. So let's hear God's word. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Uh, I can't remember if you guys do this here, but the congregations that I've pastored, at this point, I would say, this is the word of the Lord, and you would say, let's pray together. Father, there's a, a density of um, speech and heart and import in this passage that I'm still trying to figure out. Would you um, help my friends here to join me on that journey of seeing how understanding what we have in Christ, a firm identity in Him, can free us to proclaim the Gospel. Help us, Holy Spirit, to understand this Word that You've given to us well, that we might be changed by it, and that we might give it away. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been uh, several years now, um, but um, I remain a persistent Hamilton Nut. Uh, probably listen to it of a long drive tonight after the evening gathering up to Columbia, Maryland, where I'm doing some work, and uh, I'll probably listen to it on the way because it's a great way to fill two hours and 26 minutes. Um, one of the reasons that I like it is I love the inner psychology of the main characters of Hamilton and Burr, and I'll, I'll come back to that a little bit more. But I'd like you to recall if you've not taken in Hamilton, you can get it, I think, still on Apple TV, maybe. Um, they have the video of it. The music is well worth it. Um, even if you're not typically, uh, that's not your typical style of music. Um, it also wasn't mine before I started listening to Hamilton, and that's fine. Uh, we can all stretch and grow and learn. Uh, in Hamilton, there are three words that are a common refrain to describe 
Alexander Hamilton that are used by his critics. Used by the people who wish to tear him down. They hang over his head heavily. And here's the three words. Bastard, orphan, immigrant. Bastard, orphan, immigrant. What are three words that hang over your head? If you were going to pick three that have been spoken over you or you speak over yourself, what would they be that plague you? It's interesting to me, one of the reasons that I like Hamilton is that it displays some of this hunger in the human heart. It, it talks some about the heart cry of every human being. Uh, the hope for Hamilton of why he leaves the Caribbean and goes to New York is that in New York, besides being a wonderful place that I'm from, um, besides that, in New York, listen to this carefully, in New York you can be a new man. That's the attraction. You see, some people look back on Alexander Hamilton and all of his prodigious achievements and, and they think, well, that's what he was really about. He started the New York Post and the Coast Guard and you know, all of, no, mm -mm. that is not what he was after. An identity is what he was after. He was after a firm place to hitch himself to say, I'm a valuable, worthwhile human being. He was after an identity. One of the reasons, this is embarrassing, but I'll say it anyways. One of the reasons that I like uh, listening to Hamilton is it's a great, um, preventative. It's a great corrective. It's a great warning to me because I'm a person an awful lot like Alexander Hamilton. Not that smart, not that capable, but those kinds of idols, those kinds of dangers. You see, without a firm identity in Christ, uh, Hamilton fell into all kinds of things. And you and I don't know what we're capable of as we work for an identity. I'll explain that. I'll unpack it more later. But, but as we work for an identity, that's when we get into trouble. Uh, I go around the country. I help pastors like Jeff. I help lots of churches across denominations to help them become more healthy. What's a healthy church? A healthy church, a healthy congregation is one where the members have a firm identity in Christ that serves as a foundation for their lives, for relationships, and for ministry and evangelism. Uh, one of the reasons why I think this is so important is because it's the consuming goal of the Apostle Paul. If you pull back the lens and you look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, particularly as we see it in his letters to the churches, his consuming goal is to build identity in Christ. It's what underlies his own inner psychology, Paul's inner psychology that is so different than Alexander Hamilton's that you wonder if they're even of the same species. How do we know Paul's inner psychology? Well, he tells it to us. And he tells it to us for our good. And that's what we're going to try and look at as we look in this passage today from 1 Corinthians. This passage works well from bottom to top. And so we're going to start down in verse 5 where we find the problem and we're going to move upwards to try and find the solution. Uh, some of you who will be familiar uh, with um, Tim Keller's uh, sermon or the little booklet, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, 
we'll find some distinct similarities between what I'm going to say and what he says there. And it is because I have been so influenced helpfully by that work. If you are unfamiliar with that printed sermon uh, or the audio, your life is bereft. I will buy you a copy of it if you have never seen it before, because it is that worth it. Okay? All right, what's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the problem that Paul was trying to solve? Look with me down at verse 5. Creaturely judgment is the problem that we need to see. Paul says, therefore, do not pronounce judgments. You have to take this carefully. Paul confronts problems in churches, right? He's more interested in judging, as you'll see, motives, uh, hearts, character. Do not pronounce judgment before the time. The time is when the Lord comes. You can see that in the next phrase. That's when scarily everything will be revealed. The things now hidden in darkness, purposes of the heart will be disclosed, which will be scary business. Um, But also, when all this is disclosed, all of the good works that are done, right? Each one, each one will receive his commendation from God at the time. So this is reassuring. All of the hidden good works that you've done, all the prayers that you've said for people, for yourself, for others, uh, these have all been seen by the Lord. But the commendation of those is not now. We have to be content to not seek that commendation now from self or from others. We can encourage other people and we ought to. Can I say, I thank God that I see this him at work in you in this way. We need that encouragement from each other but we need to be careful that we're not seeking that final verdict, that commendation now. Why is judgment a problem? Our culture realizes this now. It's the biggest thing that they accuse Christians of. So judgmental. Why is judgment a problem? Judgment's a problem because creatures don't have the ability to see the heart. And so when we judge, we do it proudly. We do it in darkness. We assume that we can see what we can't possibly know. And so the command here, right, to not pronounce judgment before the time, it's not ours to judge actually, um, is to not arrogate to ourselves God's prerogative to judge men's hearts. That's his job, not ours. This also is a corrective. It keeps us from a danger. Uh, In our pride, in our judging, uh, we can knock down others in an attempt to form an identity, to work for an identity for ourselves, to build ourselves up. We knock someone else down. And so we puff ourselves up. We judge ourselves worthy. We commend ourselves before the time when God will make that ultimate evaluation. We can also do the opposite. We'll come back to the opposite a little bit later. All right, so the problem's creaturely judgment. One possible solution is to say, well, you know, all right, I'm not going to do that, but um, I I think that I can probably, I won't judge other people, but I'm going to equip myself. And we fall for self-justification. This is just a warning here to not do that. Let's look at the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 for why that's a false solution to this problem. Paul says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Second half of verse 3. I do not even judge myself. Uh, And I think this is both ways. This isn't superiority. I judge myself worthy. It's not self-aggrandizing. Not drawing attention to myself, but also not, not knocking myself down either. The way that I think about myself is not attached, Keller says, it's not attached to sin. There's reason for that. We'll think about that in a minute. 
Paul says, verse 4, I'm not aware of anything against myself. I would think this is him trying to say that he's repentant, that he's reconciled. In the Old Testament, we hear about the righteous. Who are the righteous? Not the people that are perfect, but the people who are repenting, fearing the Lord, trusting in him, turning from their sin. But Paul says, well, even though I'm not aware of anything against myself, I'm not thereby acquitted. I'm also, excuse me, not self-justified. Paul, of course, very, um, very much knew his sin. He would have been trained in the Old Testament. He would have known Psalm 19, right? 12, forgive me my hidden faults. He would call himself later, uh, talking to Timothy, I am the chief of sin. Not that I was, but I am. So this isn't Paul saying I've become sin-free somehow. But it is him saying, I've committed myself wholly to the Lord. It's the Lord who judges me. I've gotten out of the me judging me business. That would be really good if I could get out of the me judging me business. Would be awesome. So what's Paul saying here? He refused to be a determiner of his own righteousness, a determiner of his own acquitting. He placed himself in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. I don't know if you use catechisms here. Catechisms were tools that were developed in the Reformation era They're styled in the format of questions and answers, and they were made for God's people to learn the basics of the faith. So the Heidelberg Catechism is one that comes out of Germany. Um, And um, what I hear Paul saying here is is akin to what the catechism writers made as the first question and answer. Paul placed himself into the hands of his faithful Savior. If you had the opportunity to try and teach somebody who is brand new to the faith, what are the basics of the Christian faith? What are the, what's the first thing that you would want to say? Well, here's the first thing the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism thought was important for you to learn to say. Um, fair warning, I don't know that it will happen today, but it's somewhat frequent that when I read the answer to this question that I cry. So if you're uncomfortable with the, the view of a grown man crying, you've been warned. The question asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. This is akin to what Paul was saying. I've, I've, I've given it to the Lord to judge me because I know he, how He judges me in Christ. Now that might be hard for you to think through if you don't understand the role of Jesus in, in Christianity. Jesus, um, You can understand it this way solves uh, both of our main problems. Humans have two problems before God. 
One problem is that God says, God our creator who lovingly knows us and knows how human existence works best says, y'all ought to go do these things. These will really bless you. And we look at those things that God says, go do, and we go, nah. And God says, don't do these things. These will be really harmful. And we're like, wow, those look good. We should do those. And that creates two problems for us. God said, go do these things. And we're like, nope. He said, don't do these things. And we're like, yep. And so we have these two different problems. We haven't done the right things that God called us to. And the wrong things that he said, don't do. Yeah, we were interested in doing them. And Jesus comes and he solves those two problems that we have before God. He lives perfectly. He's born. We confessed it this morning. He lives perfectly his whole life. It fulfills all righteousness. He lives perfectly in our place. And he does all that God called us to that we didn't do. He does. And all the things that God said don't do, Jesus never did a single one of them. Must have been annoying. Anyways, particularly to be a sibling. Can't imagine what it was like growing up in Jesus' house. Um, but all the things that, that we, the things that God said don't do, that we've done, Jesus never did any of them, but he dies. And he does not for the sins that he did, but for the sins that we, that we do. And so this holy committing yourself to the Lord, giving yourself over to the Lord to judge you, that could be scary if you don't understand what Jesus came for. But that's, that's why he came. He came to kindly call us away from that which could never satisfy us. We call that, in Christianity, we call that repentance. To turn from all the things that we try and do to manage our own lives. Uh, that is, you realize why you sin. Because you're trying to manage your own life on your own. And in the gospel, God kindly says, won't you lay that down and stop trying to figure it all out on your own? Stop trying to rule yourself. Stop trying to get it done by yourself. And would you instead turn to me? And so we call this repentance, turning from this. And faith, we say, Jesus, I need you desperately. Living, dying, rising for me. Have you done that? Are you living that way day by day, repenting and believing? Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to those who, who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Is that you? That's the beginning of this freedom that Paul speaks about here. Sometimes I think we put Paul at a pedestal and we think, wow, he really had it all together and whoo, I could never be like him. And he's like, nope, chief of sinners. This is Paul talking about his daily repentance and lifestyle living. He says, this is how I struggle. And he calls us into it. To struggle alongside. The problem's judgment. A false solution is self-justification. The solution to that is to throw yourself anew on God's mercy and when you do that, with Paul then, you can feel free to proclaim. You can feel free to proclaim. Look with me, starting up at verse 1. Uh, remember the problem in, in Corinth, if you've read Corinthians before, the, the problem that, um, oh, this is that water that you mentioned. Thank you. That's good. Um, the problem in Corinth that Paul's trying to solve at this particular point 
um, is although Paul had started the church, other teachers had come through, Paulus, Peter, and different people had hitched their wagon to different teachers that had come through and taught in the church. And it'd be though as though this section of the church was saying, we're of Paul, this section, we're of Cephas, and we're of Apollos, right? And, and everybody had sort of their favorite politician, oh, sorry, their favorite preacher. Misspoke there for a second. And they had hitched their wagon to somebody as a way to form an identity. That's what we do. We hitch ourselves to a label, to a person, to a cause, to a perspective as a way to have an identity, a stable sense of self, a group I belong to. And Paul says, this is the problem. So in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, well, how should you think about us as leaders that have been among you? He says, this is how one should regard us, the apostles. We're servants of Christ. We're stewards of the mysteries of God, of the gospel, and other now revealed truths. That's how you should think about us. That's merely what we are, servants and stewards, not somebody you can derive an identity from. Those stewards, verse 2, it's required of them because they're not owners of the truth. They're just stewards of it. It's required of them that they be found uh, trustworthy, that they guard the good deposit we read about in 1 Timothy. And then Paul goes on to try and actually deal with the issue. As he looks inside of himself, as he sees them and their issues trying to form an identity by hitching their wagon to a particular individual, he says, let me tell you how to think about this rightly. He says, with me, it is a, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. In the conference yesterday, we were talking about this, this particular point. And um, I think it's, it, we, it, particularly in a culture that has moved much more towards an honor-shame dynamic where you can get canceled like that, and your, your existence is over, culturally speaking. We have a very heightened sense of what other people think of us. We very much want them to think of us well. We very much don't want to be rejected by them. We very much want to remain respectable to them. And Paul says, yeah, I'm done with that. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. So be careful here. You could think that Paul's just kind of like, well, you know, I, I kind of got it all together and, and, you know, I know how to judge me, so I'm not paying. Oh, we'll, we'll just abuse you of that in just a minute. This is also not uh, people pleasing for sure. It's also not inferiority. It's not feeling small in your eyes. It's not, it's not seeking to please you. It's also not being crushed by your impression of me. It's not, Keller puts it well, it's not that Paul's empty, it's that he's filled up. He doesn't need them to be pleased with him for him to have a firm sense of himself. It's not just the Corinthians, though. It's a small thing that I should be judged by you. 
surely you see how corrosive that is anyways when you do it to other people and then they respond to you. They're absolutely corrosive things. Why judgment's the problem? It's a small thing that I should be judged by you and actually not by you, but by any human court. And here you get the sense of why we talk, I, my sense was of why we talk about self-justification. This is the, what Paul's talking about. He's talking about being in court, being in verdict, trying to get a verdict. And we can try and get that verdict from ourselves. I, I'm, I'm good. I think that about myself. Or I try and get it from you. Paul says, I'm done with all that. I'm not there anymore. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Uh, Keller puts it very picturesque. I can't remember if this is in the book, but it's in the original sermon. He says, um, and this is so helpful to just repeat it. Um, I have a very small opinion of your opinion of me. And I have a very small opinion of my opinion of me. I've become content with God's opinion of me. And God's opinion of you as you're trusting in Christ is this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Because that's what's spoken over Jesus. And as you're trusting in Him, that is what's counted to you. And Paul got this. And that's what he's trying to say. And that's what helps you be free. So this is sort of a two-punch combo. See what I, it's in my notes that I didn't already say. Um, I don't judge me. I refuse to let you judge me. Um, that frees me up for evangelism because I'm not thinking about me anymore. I'm not thinking about my insecurity, about not being good at this or not doing it like someone else might do it. I'm sort of free of that. And I'm free of what you think about me. Instead, I'm focused on what Jesus thinks of me and simply trying to be faithful to his calling on my life. Perhaps it's not very reassuring to your self-esteem to just be thought merely of as a servant of Christ, a steward. It's certainly not reassuring to my self-esteem to think in this way. I'm not sure that God is interested in our self-esteem in the way that our culture is. In fact, I'm nearly positive that he's not. Why do we pursue that route anyways? It's because we are working for an identity. Um, Some years ago, God was kind to help me see this difference between working for an identity and receiving an identity. The difference between working for an identity and receiving an identity. Working for an identity, that's what Alexander Hamilton did with his whole life. But what happens when you have to um, achieve or please or whatever way you, your mode of working is, what happens in that dynamic? Well, what my wife would tell you about me is that it puts me and it puts those around me on a performance treadmill. And it leads to untold stress and fear and anxiety and worry and lots of other sins, as Alexander Hamilton found out. What's the alternative to working for an identity? It's simply to receive one. If I can simply receive with an open hand by faith 
what God simply grants to me for Christ's sake, then life is vastly simpler. If I can choose to be content, if I can take content in an identity that says, you're my adopted child, enjoy. And I'll just take that and receive it, treasure it, and enjoy it, and live in the freedom of that. Then my life is, your life is vastly simpler. This is why reading verse 21 from chapter 3 is so important. I'll read it again. So let no one boast in men. That's the problem, right? Is boasting. Why do you not need to boast? Why do you not need to work for an identity? Paul says this dense thing. We already sang it wonderfully. For all things are yours. That which you are seeking, you already have. If you only could realize it. All things are already yours by virtue of being united by faith to Christ. Think of it this way. It's like working your whole life to have enough funds to retire, only to discover when you finally check your balance that you were already a billionaire. But of course, here we're not talking about money, but something vastly more important. About having a stable sense of self. So that you're not canvassing about internally or externally seeking for it. And best of all, you're free. Imagine with me a life where you aren't consumed by self-justifying thoughts. Where you don't have to give yourself inward pep talks to maintain a sense of self-respect. Or you aren't quietly desiring, seeking, wanting, hoping that somebody will say something that can validate you. Imagine a life like that. I call that chatter. When that chatter diminishes because of this active work of faith in Christ, my receiving of this identity, my receiving that in Him I have all things actually, that's when I become free. Free to follow God and His commands, Free to do those things that God calls me to do and that I now want to do with my renewed heart. Free to love God and my neighbor. Free to serve Christ and his people. Free to bring this gospel message to those who don't yet know him. When you have a congregation that's full of people like that, that are, that are pointed towards that, men and women, boys and girls, that this is what they would be learning here at Calvary, that makes for a great church that people want to be in and they stay in and they want to be a part of because they're like, y'all got something I want. Yeah, we do. It's through Jesus. Can we tell you about him? And it's not more complex than that. You have a congregation like that, things will go well for you. God's design in sending a son for us, Paul reminds us, It's for freedom Christ has set us free. It's this freedom that we have from trusting in Him. It's for freedom. It's freedom He's won for us by the work of His Son in our place. I'm so thrilled that we're taking the Lord's Supper this morning. When you come to the Lord's table, one of the things you ought to be reminded of 
is that Christ has done the work. He, he did the work, so you don't have to do the work. He did the work so you can have an identity in Him and not have to work for it. And all you have to do is simply receive. Won't you friends embrace that kind of freedom, the kind of freedom that comes from having a firm identity in Christ? Won't you enjoy God for giving that to you because of Christ? If you do, that's at least a good start on learning how to feel free to proclaim. Let's pray together. Father, even as I am privileged to preach this and teach it, I know myself to be in the second week of kindergarten. To have just begun. To learn this for myself. I pray that my friends here would yearn to learn it for themselves. That they would truly enjoy being yours. That they might give you away. Help us too, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.